Good to be together to worship God. Uh, what beautiful singing to think, as Griff has already mentioned, what heaven is going to be like. Uh, you got to love Sunday nights and you got to love heaven, and that's going to be a good combination right there uh, for people that enjoy those two things. When we think about great things, you know, this morning I couldn't help but think when, when the picture of Doug Ferguson holding the twins, when I saw that picture, the first thing that went through my mind was, you got your hands full. Uh, that was a beautiful picture and how blessed they are and how blessed we are that they are, uh, in a sense, a part of the church family. And we do look forward to Scholarship Sunday just around the corner in a few weeks. And uh, we look forward to him and the other uh, men preaching for us on that day. Uh, we're thankful that Recovery Through Christ is about to begin the new steps uh, process over the next several months. And so right now is a great time to jump in if, uh, if you've been thinking about that. Now's a good time to tell others about it. You know, we mailed out the postcard and uh, it literally two walked in from off the street because of that postcard and others before then made contact about it before then. And so there's a lot of talk in the community about it and there's a lot here that are being blessed and a part of the blessing in that. And so uh, we're thankful for that and, and keep that in mind this coming week. Also, we're thankful looking back on Friday and Saturday to our leadership retreat. It was a tremendous blessing. Some of you have said that, that you were praying for us during that, and that means a whole lot. And God answers prayers of the righteous, and he definitely did. It was a tremendous time together. We appreciate John Michael's leadership in that, and we appreciate each one of our elders and deacons, and, and uh, God truly has blessed us with tremendous leadership. When we think about great expectations... We think about a couple of weeks ago, David. He was a clear description of how God can see a little boy, even in a shepherd's field, and he can see and expect great things out of him because God knows the heart and God knows the future. We looked for several times now at 1 Samuel, the sixth chapter. Remember in verse 7, it is revealed to us that man looks on the outward part, but, but God looks at the heart. And so we need to be genuine. And when we think about great expectation, God expects us from the inside out to be devoted to him. That took us this morning the idea of holding an acorn. Every one of us this morning held an acorn and we looked at it. And we thought about what is inside there. And we look up at a mighty oak tree and it's hard to think and to believe when you're just looking at that acorn, that's where it came from. It's hard to believe what God can do in our life if like Psalms, the first chapter, we decide. Now see, here's where the burden comes on us because God's already paid the price through his son, Jesus. God, before the foundation of the earth, has already made the way possible uh, by, through plans. That plan was made before the foundation of the earth and through Jesus it was made possible. And so now the choice is ours. We can decide to plant our life by that rivers of water into the will of God and we can thrive and we can grow and we can bear fruit in season and our, our leaves won't wither. We won't be dishonorable. We won't be disgraceful and we can prosper. Remember that word prosper had to do with pushing through the hard times toward a reward. And definitely when we see that oak tree and it's mass season of, of thousands of acorns. We say, wow, look how, how beautiful it is, how strong it is. It was because of where it was planted and how it continued to push through. 
With that in mind, we think about many ways that God has communicated to us great expectations. And so for 52 weeks this year, we want to talk about very clearly to each other of what is God's expectations. And especially today and over the few weeks, we want to look at the first one, and that is choose God. If we were to say, God, where would you start? What would you want us to do? The first thing God would say is, I want you to choose who is going to be your God. That's where it begins. And there may be some in this room says, well, I've never thought about that because I've just grown up in a Christian home and, and it's just going to be God. Well, you need to think about it. And you need to make a choice. Who is going to rule your life? Who's going to be Lord of your life? Will you choose God? With that in mind, I want to invite you over to Joshua, the 24th chapter. And Joshua, the 24th chapter, and we'll get to that exact text in just a moment. And as we do that, I'd like for you to think about Joshua himself. What a great man of strength and courage. We could give many compliments to Joshua. I'd like for you to think about Joshua in just a few kind of bullet type, random type points just to get our minds churning about Joshua, appreciation for Joshua, and then appreciation where he is by the time we come to the 24th chapter. What are great compliments that we could give Joshua? One is the very fact that he stepped in the shoes of leadership of probably one of the greatest men that ever lived, and yet he wasn't overshadowed. I don't know of a greater compliment than we can give Joshua than that. He followed Moses and did a tremendous job. The Bible doesn't say Moses died and Joshua stepped up and Israel fell apart. It didn't say that. Instead, Israel did very well. We learn in Joshua, the fourth chapter, that the people feared and trusted Joshua just like they did Moses. Now, that's a huge compliment. And then Israel even followed God. And we learn this in the early few chapters of Judges. They followed God as long as Joshua was alive and the elders that followed him. In other words, Joshua led the people Joshua had the elders that were the leaders ready to lead the people, but after Joshua died, and then after those elders died, Israel started leaving God. That reminds us of how important it is for leadership to continually raise up leaders. Joshua rose up, he raised up some leaders, but the problem is apparently after he died, those leaders did not raise up godly leaders, and they left the Lord. But we see Joshua as a man that was a slave in Egypt. We see him as a man that was chosen as the representative of his tribe to go over as one of the spies. And when those 12 spies came back seeing fortified cities and giants, only two stood in faith and said, through God, we can conquer. 10 did not have a good report and the people believed the other 10. It was Joshua and Caleb that stood faithful. Joshua would have had a difficult life because he would have wandered around that wilderness for 40 years and he would have watched all of his peers die, even his leader Moses. And then when it's time for conquest, now let that sink in what that means. That means you're going to take people that grew up as children in a wilderness from slave families to go over and fight trained, armed, powerful armies. Who's going to lead individuals that aren't trained 
that are not soldiers, who's going to lead them into battle? Joshua became the conqueror. Joshua knew that it was by the power of God, and he always gave God the credit. But nevertheless, there has to be that fearless leader that trusts God to lead the armies into such a situation. He did so. He did so successfully. Now he's toward the end of his life and he's going to die. And so like Moses, his predecessor, he gives a farewell address. And so Joshua, the 23rd and 24th chapter is the farewell address. And notice what he says when we get to the 24th chapter and verse 14, because there was still a strong Canaanite influence. And in that would have been a lot of idolatry. And in their idolatry would have been a lot of sensual practices as a part of their worship. In other words, there would have been a great temptation to the flesh to become those that would practice this idolatry. And so Joshua stands before them in Joshua 24, 14, 15, and 16. Now, therefore, fear the Lord Serve in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The first thing that we will bring out that he says to them is, today you will make a choice. The leader stands before them. And I want you to notice that before he tells them you will make a choice, he first tells them in 14 clearly what the command of God is. In other words, there could not be anyone in Israel that would say, well, I didn't know that we were supposed to choose the Almighty God. Joshua never made that clear to us. Well, you know, I've been an Israelite all these years. And, you know, Joshua's just always so vague. You know, I've been going to church there for months, and I've never heard anybody talk about how to become a Christian. I just didn't know. Listen, if we're doing what we should do in the life of a church, we are constantly, clearly communicating God's expectations. I want you to notice again up there at verse 14. Notice how clear he said this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve in sincerity. See, that singleness of mind. Don't go over here to these gods and then try to come back to the God. No, serve in sincerity and in truth. Well, what are we supposed to do with all these other gods, Joshua? Put away the gods which your father served. You see how clear that is? But now notice, even he as the great conqueror realizes God can command and I can clearly tell God's commandments. But it still comes down to this. You still have a choice. Isn't that true? Just because God's commanded something today doesn't mean you have to do it. Just because there's an eldership leading us in the direction toward God doesn't mean you have to make a decision to go in that direction. Just because a preacher stands before you and reads out of God's Word so that you clearly know what the commandments teach doesn't mean you have to do it. Still, we all have to make a choice. Turn back, if you will, to Exodus, the 20th chapter. I'd like to remind you just a couple of the Ten Commandments. 
And I want you to notice where they begin because as I was writing this and studying this, my fear was that we would just take this first point for granted. And I don't want us to take it for granted. In other words, I want us to see that this is where God began from time to time. It's not uncommon for God to say, whoa, before we go anywhere, I want you to stop and decide who's going to be your God. Think about this as we read the Ten Commandments. This is God speaking to Israel, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20th chapter, verse 1. It's talking about God said this, and now let's read verse 2. This is what God said. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Say that. Who's your God going to be? You want a commandment? Now you'll have to decide if you're going to obey it or not, Israel. But let me tell you what the commandment is. Canaanites, Amorites, they're all going to offer you their gods. I don't want you to have one other God before you. None. All right, what about if you want to make your own? Look at the second. Look at verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in heaven beneath or that's in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Why? For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Remember, that's why Oprah Winfrey said she'd no longer serve the God of the Bible. It's because he's a jealous God. This is a healthy, good jealousy. Something's wrong with a husband or wife that's married to each other, and they're not jealous in a healthy way of each other. That's the type of jealousy. I do not want to share someone that I've made a commitment with. That's what God is saying here. I am a jealous God. In other words, I am wholly committed to you. I expect you to be wholly committed to me. We are in a covenant relationship is what he is referring to here. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God, why is it so important that we serve only you? And he says, if you serve only me, you're going to bless the generations to come. If you don't serve only me, it will serve as a curse, not only to you, but your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Listen, the religious and moral and spiritual decisions that we either make or we don't make in our life not only affects us, but it affects our influence on future generations. There's a part of what we're experiencing right now in America. The seeds were sown back in the 60s. There's a part of what we're experiencing in America today. The seeds were sown in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. Listen, there is no generation that lives as an island to themselves. And God's bringing that out here as he is saying, I want you to choose and to make it very clear, don't have any other gods before me or before you. Don't carve and make other gods. Why? Because we're in a covenant relationship. I'm a jealous God. You be committed to me. I'll be committed to you. Let's see a New Testament version of this. Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 24. Notice this one passage, and then we're going back to Joshua. Look at Matthew 6 and 24. Jesus stood up and he said, No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one, he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and, now you can fill in the blank with anything. Here Jesus filled in the blank with mammon. You can't serve God in mammon. You can't serve God in materialism. You can't serve God in fleshly lust. You can't serve God in popularity. You, you can fill the blank in with anything else. But he's saying, 
you can't serve two masters. Only one can be preeminent. One can be supreme in your life, and everything else has to fall under that. So we go back to Joshua, and Joshua made it very clear. He gave a very clear commandment in verse 14, but then in 15 he says, you'll have to choose. But now I want you to notice that same phrase, and I want us to put an emphasis on choose for yourself. See there in Joshua 24? Choose for yourself. In other words, this is not a nation's decision. He didn't stand there as their leader. He was the highest leader in that nation. He did not have any right or authority to say, hey, by the way, I wanted to let you know I made a decision for all of us. We are all serving the Lord. He didn't have that authority. Sometimes we like to think that we can make decisions for each other. Oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my spouse serve the Lord. I'm going to make my children serve the Lord. I'm going to make my parents serve the Lord. I love my friends so much, I'm going to make them become a Christian. And we all know what the reality of that is. Nobody can make that decision for anybody else. Choose yourself what you'll do. Now you also realize what that same coin flipped over means. It means this. It's your responsibility and nobody else's. You can't blame it on the nation. Well, I tell you what, I'd be a faithful Christian if I just lived in a different country. I tell you what, I'd be a faithful Christian if, if I just had a different community to grow up in. I'd be a faithful Christian if I just had a different family. I'd be a faithful Christian if I just had a different work environment. No. This one you can't share with anybody else. Every individual in this room has individually made their decision already up to this point. Now the good news is we can change as long as there's breath and opportunity. But up to this point, every individual has made their own decision. Somebody cannot stop you from becoming a Christian and they can't make you become a Christian. Choose for yourself. Personal responsibility. By the way, we're going to get back to that series on responsibility very soon, hopefully next Sunday evening. But I want you to think about that as we've been thinking last Sunday evening about responsibility. This is one of the greatest areas of responsibility we could discuss. What are you going to do with your decision, with your soul, with your heart, with your life? But now, I'd like for you to notice the next two words that follow that. Let's go to the next slide, but notice it's the same verses. Look there at verse 15 again. Choose for yourself this day. You see the urgency that he put there? The urgency, you need to decide now. Why? Why is it such a big deal? I'm young. Why is it such a big deal? I, I can put it off to a different season of life. Why is it such a big deal? There's got to be a time that's more convenient. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? but it was a guy in the Bible that made such a poor decision. What do we know about our life? 
We're, we're just going to quickly mention these. If, if you can read that, I want you to notice there, these are just a few examples in the scriptures of what we know from God about our life. Samuel said that our life is like spilt water on the ground. Hits the, wa- hits the ground and psh, dries up. It happens that quick. We're like a shadow in Psalms or like the wind in Job or another passage in Job 9 is like a swift messenger or a swift ship, or a swooping eagle. This is all describing how long our life is. Or Job also calls it a flower. The psalmist calls it like grass. Or also the wind, or also just a sigh, and it's gone. Or Psalm calls it a breath, and Job does too, and it's gone. Or James calls it a vapor, here for a little while, and it vanishes away. What are all of these writers all throughout the Bible trying to say to us? you're probably not going to live as long as you think you are. Almost everybody thinks they've got another day. They've got another week. They've got another year. But you know, for every one of us, we wake up one morning, and that's the last morning we wake up. It's sobering to me as a preacher to pause and think, for many people, I've preached the last sermon they ever heard. Did I preach with urgency? Because if not, I let them down if they were not a Christian and the message had no urgency. Why is the message of salvation urgent? Number one, because life is brief. Number two, because we do not know when Jesus is coming back again. Number three, because the Bible teaches that our heart can be hardened. The longer we put off doing good, the longer and the the more likely our heart is to become calloused. You know, when you first do something wrong, your tender conscience pricks at you and it hurts and you think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But you know, if you keep doing wrong, A few weeks, you might say, oh, maybe I should stop doing that. And a few months, you don't even think you should stop doing it. And a year or two later, you actually do it and kind of brag about it. How did you get to that point of doing wrong and bragging about it? It's called a hardened heart. Right now, tonight, you may be this close to becoming a Christian. But if you continue to put it off, your heart has to become hardened. A few months from now, you may be this far from becoming a Christian. A few months after that, you may be this far becoming a Christian. And a year from now, you may not be anywhere close to becoming a Christian. Why? Because that's the way it works in a heart that will not submit to God. But the fourth reason why it is urgent is because we do not know all the people that are following our example. Everybody here has influence. Your influence is either a blessing to people's life or your influence is a stumbling block. And there very well, very well could be someone sitting in this auditorium right now that's thinking to themselves, I'm not a Christian, but I also know so-and-so is not a Christian. And if they can set through this, I can set through this. And you can sit there and say, well, they shouldn't be thinking that. Well, you know what? You don't have that choice. That's how influence works. 
You live a good life, you have good influence. You live foolishly, you have a foolish influence. You don't have a choice to say, I want to deal foolishly in my life, but I want people to have the effect in their life as if I'm wise. You don't get that option. That's not the way life works. There's a lot of good reasons to choose for yourself this day to become a Christian. I'd like for you to notice as we move toward a close, that same passage ends in verse 16. Joshua saying, or the end of verse 15, he says, but as for me and my house. Now notice, he's not making a decision for his house. I think what Joshua is saying there is, I've led them and I know them. You know, just like you know whether or not your house has decided to serve the Lord. You, you know what, if your children are faithful or not. You know if your spouse. And so Joshua is saying, I've made my decision. And personally, I know my, my house has made the decision too. What, what are you going to do? We're going to serve the Lord. You see the beauty in that? The beauty in that is he's saying to all these people that are going to be tempted with his sensual sin of idolatry. And, and you can imagine some of them are probably thinking, do you think anybody would live a pure and holy life? And he's saying, you're not going to be alone. We're going to live for the Lord. And I hope you'll live for the Lord too. Brethren, we have a blessing that you don't have to have this blessing to be a faithful Christian because there's Christians all over the world proving you don't have to have this blessing to be a faithful Christian. But I want you... Either physically do it right now or in your mind's eye. I just want you to look around. You have hundreds of faithful Christians that by their life they're saying, I've decided to follow God. And isn't it awesome tonight that if you decide to become a Christian, you're not walking this way alone. You're walking this way with hundreds that would be thrilled to walk this way with you toward heaven. The fable, not the Bible, the fable says Satan was getting some of his emissaries together to send to earth to try to bring more souls to hell. And so he, he looked at one and he said, if I sent you back to draw men in, into a wicked life, what would your message be? And he thought for a moment and he said, my message would be, there is no heaven. That would bring a lot of people down. He says, no. God's placed a bit of heaven in every heart. You will not go. He looked over at the next one. He said, if I send you back, what would your message be? And the fable says that this, this servant said, if you'll send me back, I'll tell them there is no hell. And Satan thought for just a moment and he said, no, the conscience tells you that good is good and evil is evil and you just know one day that goodness is going to rule over evil. Man will believe there's a hell. You can't go. He looked over at this other one and he said, if I send you, what would you say? And the simple answer was this. I would tell them there's no hurry. 
And Satan said, Go. Go quickly. Tonight, I want to beg you to think about the expectation that God places upon every one of us. And it's kind of this simple. He is the Almighty God. We either choose Him or we don't. And I don't know anywhere else that we should begin this year-long study than where He begins the Ten Commandments. I want to be your God. And I don't want you to have any other gods before you. And we have to choose that. Or we don't. In a minute, we're going to sing an invitation song. And if you've made that choice and you're ready to become a Christian, we want to rejoice with you and the heavenly host for a wonderful decision you're making. Maybe you've become a Christian along the way. You, you evaluate your life and you realize it's not on the path to be some kind of mighty tree beside the rivers of water. But you want to plant yourself there again. That's the beauty of, of God. He's, he's got His arms open and He wants us to come back to Him. But I also want to ask every one of you, I'm begging you, this week, Will you go to your knees and will you pray every day for people to make a decision over the next two weeks to choose God? In the book of Acts, the church moved in a powerful way when the church gathered and prayed. Let's bow. Most gracious God, we praise you as the great I am, our creator, our sustainer. We recognize, God, without you, there is no hope. And God, our prayer is for each one of us in this room. As Satan is whispering lies in one ear, God, our prayer is that we will be wise enough to hear your truth and love you and devote our life to you. God, I pray for those in this room right now that are trying to decide what to do. God, our prayer, our collective prayer to you is that they will choose you. God, for others that need to come to you that maybe are not in these walls, our prayer is that you'll open up doors of opportunity for us to say a good word to them about you this week. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for redeeming us. You're far better to us than what we ever deserve. And we want the whole world to know that so they can know your blessings too. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.